Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello, Raider Nation. Welcome to another edition of the Believe in Raiders podcast, Believe Podcast Network. I'm your co-host, Dennis Ackerman, and pleased to be joined by my partner, Stanford Route. Stanford, how we doing? How's everything in H-Town? Pretty good, man. Uh, just another day in the life. Uh, today's a little bit rainy, so I've uh, been inside for most of the day. But uh, otherwise, man, it's April, getting a little bit closer to this draft, so I always love this time of year. All right, let's get going. And the Raiders continue to add pieces to their defense. They re-signed safety Carl Joseph, who spent last season with the Cleveland Browns. Joseph appeared in 14 games with Cleveland, starting eight of those. He started 41 games in four years prior to that in his first stint with the Raiders. Stanford, before I get your thoughts on the move, let's hear what Joseph had to say about coming back to the silver and black and playing for new defensive coordinator Gus Bradley. I have a lot of respect for Coach Gus. Um, very smart dude. Um, obviously proven in this league and, and been successful. Um, know what he's doing. So I'm excited to be a part of a part of it and, and playing his defense, man. And, you know, I played in a similar defense in Cleveland, so it won't be too much change for me. Um, I think I'll, I'll, I'll be able to grasp everything pretty, pretty quickly. Um, but I'm excited to work with him um, and learn from him. All right, Stanford, we just heard from Joseph. What is your take on the signing? I don't hate it. I know, obviously, you probably have your own difference of opinion as well, Dennis. Uh, I think that it can be a good signing if you use him correctly. We see that Gus Bradley, back in his days with the Seattle Seahawks, the Legion of Boom, that dynastic defense that he had for so long, Cam Chancellor was not necessarily a ball hawker. He wasn't. What was his main job? Be the enforcer. Be the guy who's going to go ahead, lower the boom if you want to be a tight end coming across the middle or sticking his nose in there in the run game. And I think that when you look at Carl Joseph, that was the main component of him when he came out of West Virginia and was a top 15 pick. Was it he's somebody that's physical? He likes to stick his nose in there, things like that. If you're somebody that's not known as a ball hawker, not somebody who's great against the pass, that can go ahead and it can affect you in this league. But I think that if teams use you the right way, a.k.a. Jamal Adams for the Seattle Seahawks right now. He's only got, I think, two career interceptions, but he's one of the top safeties in the league, been to the Pro Bowl uh, every year since he's been in the league, ever since, ever, uh, other than his rookie season. One of the top guys broke the record for sacks in a season for a defensive back last year. Kudos to him. I think that if you use Carl Joseph in the same manner, he will still be effective. But if you're asking him to go out there and play like Earl Thomas or Ed Reed, you're going to be disappointed. To me, it's a Band-Aid signing. It's just a temporary fix. Now, is he an upgrade over Eric Harris, who I think just signed with the Atlanta Falcons, mm-hmm. and Jeff Heath, who's still currently on the Raiders roster? Yes, I'm going to say he's an upgrade. But it's just a temporary fix, Stanford. And I think the Raiders have a history of doing this on the defensive side of the ball. 
I mean, he's not a game changer. He's not someone who the offense has to plan for. I mean, I was looking up his numbers. In 63 career games, five interceptions and five fumble recoveries. There was all these wonderful free agent safeties out there. And the Raiders, and I'm going to say, they settled for Carl Joseph. He's, I don't know how he makes the defense better. Let me ask you this, Dennis. Now, you said that there's all these other great safety candidates and options that were out there. Give me three names you would have liked to have seen the Raiders sign in this free agent period. Well, there was Johnson from the Los Angeles Rams. I think he was going to be too expensive. Keep going. And I know the Justin Simmons from the Denver Broncos, but I know that he was franchise tagged. Yes, exactly. So he's pretty much like not, you know, not available. So right. to speak. Okay. But at least being, I know you said too expensive for them, but then again, we'll turn around and we're going to sign Kenyon Drake. We're going to give him two years, $11 million. Let's invest on the defensive side of the football. Yeah. I think they got Ngakwe for two years, and he should upgrade the pass rush. And I know you say with Gus Bradley's defense, the pass rush is key in the cover three. But Stanford, if you look at the Raiders, last year they had 21 sacks. That's it, 21 sacks for the season. So Ngakwe averages nine sacks a year, right? And let's say Max Crosby goes back to his rookie year and records double-digit sacks. Let's give him 10. That's still just 19. Where is the pass rush going to come from? They still need to add somebody in the draft because Arden Key, I'm not sure how he's still on the team. Maurice Hurst, okay. Solomon Thomas, okay. Carl Nassib, I mean, I'm just giving you some players who aren't impactful. So the defense, to me, still has not improved that much from a year ago. I think that what, uh, I think that what you're overlooking is if Ngakwe comes in at the same clip that he was with the Vikings and the Ravens and the Jacksonville Jaguars years before that, and Max Crosby simply just marginally improves because he's going to be going in his third year, so he definitely ain't peaked yet. Just off of that alone, they're going to they're going to garner a lot of the attention from the opposing team's offensive line. Well, then that also means now the D-tackle may be singled up against a guard or a center. They may be able to get off a little bit better because they now have just single coverage, or should I say they got a single blocker. So just off of the attention to those bookends, that's going to make the defensive line, the D-tackles better, not because they've all of a sudden improved their skill set, it's just going to be easier because now they just have a single blocker. So you can have, you can, you can get better just simply because of other players around you. So also look at it from that standpoint. And then also you talk about just the sack numbers. I understand that. But just like in the Super Bowl with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the Kansas City Chiefs, it's not just about sacks. It's about pressures. It's about hurries. It's about hits because just off of that alone, that disrupts things going on in the back end. I remember a time playing with Richard Seymour, Tommy Kelly, uh, Derek Burgess back in 2005, 2006. Just by making that quarterback rush his throw, the receiver's not out of his break yet. It's an incomplete pass. 
by hitting the quarterback, even though he's already thrown the ball. Those hits start to pile up. Now, all of a sudden, in the third and fourth quarter, he starts getting a little bit more of like a chicken wing where he doesn't want to follow through with his throw because he's already bracing for that hit. That's helping out the defense. That's helping out the secondary. So I think that if you look at it in a vacuum and you look at it just sacks independent of everything else on the field, yeah, okay, well, it doesn't seem like we really bought in a, a, a large number of sack totals to go ahead and help the defense. But pressure can be distributed in so many different ways other than just sacks for a defensive lineman as far as how they can affect the game. I'm, I'm definitely with you. They definitely need to still add some more pieces, and I'm assuming that they're going to do that within the draft. Now, like I said, you know, going back to the whole Carl Joseph thing, Carl Joseph was a starter on a playoff team last year. Let's remember that. So maybe he's gotten better. Maybe he's learned some of uh, some of the uh, woes that he had in his years in Oakland, now the Las Vegas Raiders. Maybe he's learned that. So also always remember this, players who come from playoff teams are highly coveted because the sentiment is they were a starter on a playoff team. Clearly, they know how to do something because otherwise – the team that they were on, that playoff team, wouldn't have been running them out there every Sunday afternoon uh, or every Sunday evening. So there has to be some sort of value in that. But I believe the Raiders will still go ahead and they will address some of their issues in the draft. They will go ahead and have some hits, like a Max Crosby being drafted in one of the later rounds from Eastern Michigan, who turns out to go ahead and have 10 sacks as a rookie. I do believe that you're going to see some improvement. All right. Well, I think we can agree that signing Carl Joseph isn't going to improve the Raiders' odds of winning the Super Bowl. And, and speaking of odds, Bet Online is the fastest and easiest way to bet on all your sports action. Bet Online has you covered for all the news, scores, and odds. It's the best way to place your bets, and it's free to sign up. Head to the website, betonline.ag, or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive 50%. Welcome bonus on your first deposit. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. All right, I wanted to give out a belated birthday wish to former legendary Raiders coach John Madden, who turned 85 on April the 10th. You know, Stanford, I think more people today remember him as a legendary broadcaster than they do a legendary coach. And I'm sad to say that I'm actually one of those people, not that I don't remember him as a coach. It was just a little bit before my time. And so I was born in 83. And so by the time I started really understanding football, becoming a fan of football, it was already the mid nineties. Now I tell you this, I'm very, very much aware of video games. Cause like I said, I've been buying that ever since the mid nineties when I started falling in love with football and also my all time favorite duo. And this, and, and this started when I became a 49ers fan. Yeah, I can say that now. Back when I was in high school, back when I was in middle school, that was my favorite team growing up, the San Francisco hey, 49ers. Houston. How could you be a Niners fan growing up in Houston? For one, Dennis, I'm from Austin. That's number one. Uh, and I became a 49ers fan because of one person, Deion Sanders. Okay. At the time, like I said, my family, my mom, my sister, uh, my, they, they're Cowboys fans. My father is a Redskins fan. And so I just fell in love with the 49ers, A, because I love Deion Sanders. And also, 
I just never liked the Cowboys because my dad never liked the Cowboys. So I didn't like the Cowboys. Now the 49ers that came on just because I love the red jerseys. I remember back in 1994, back in the uh, NFL 75th anniversary season, the 49ers were wearing the, wearing the throwback jerseys the whole year. And I loved how they had the red jerseys with the white numbers the black shadow behind it and so I, I fell in love with that and then Deion Sanders playing for them Jerry Rice Steve Young Ricky Waters all of those guys Ken Norton uh, and then they won the Super Bowl he won the defense player of the year award and so I was just a 49ers fan just from all of that so, so trust me and and I say all of that I remember my favorite duo of all time Pat Summerall and John Madden Absolutely brilliant. You knew it was a big game when those two were broadcasting. Exactly. I, I loved that duo. So that's what I mostly remember with John Madden. I know of his stats as a coach. I've seen like videos of him coaching the Oakland Raiders uh, back, back in the 70s and 80s. But that's what I, I will always remember John Madden as the broadcaster. You see this guy, uh, we call this hat on a hat. Or he talks about the Dallas Cowboys, how they got the hogs up front. Boom, this running back hits through the hole just like this. Boom. Like, I love that talk. And that's what made me fall in love with football even more so than just the 49ers. It was how he described the game. And you got a coach. You got a coach and a broadcaster who has a video game named after him. Like, I mean, think about that. We call it Madden 2000, Madden 01, Madden 02, Madden 2021, this and the other. Like, how the heck does that happen with not a player? Not, not Michael Jordan, nice, NBA nice. 2000. No, John Madden, 99, 2001, right. all the way down to this. Like, I don't even play video games much anymore because it's just, I just don't. But I make it a point to buy the Madden game every year because that is a tradition I've done since I was, what, 11 years old. So I just, I don't know how to not have the newest Madden in my upstairs closet for my PlayStation. I, just, I don't know how to do that. So yeah, um, I'm definitely one of those people that I remember him more as a broadcaster and the video game that he made so famous more so than a coach. Quick Madden story for you. I'm nine years old. It's the very end of the 1977 season. Last home game of the year. My mom takes me to the game. The Raiders are playing the Kansas City Chiefs. So mm -hmm. We get there early. We walk into the stadium. I tell my mom, Hey, I'm going to go down to the tunnel. I want to see the players, you know, walking onto the field, whether it's the Raiders and Chiefs. I don't really care. So my mom's like, okay. Stanford, it couldn't have been more than five minutes. All of a sudden, I hear my mom call my name. I'm thinking to myself, geez, I just got here. All I want to do is watch the players come onto the field. Stanford, I turn around. No lie. John Madden in the stands, sitting next to my mom, talking to her. And I was like, oh, my gosh. So my mom waves me over. And I walk over to where they are, and now he's standing up, and I'm just looking at him, and I'm in awe. I can't move. I can't speak. There's this man larger than life who I've seen on TV, who I've seen coaching the Raiders on the sidelines, and my mom's like, ask him for his autograph. And I just couldn't move. I couldn't say anything, Stanford. So finally, my mom asks him for his autograph. He gets, she gets it for me, and then he walks off. And then finally, I turn to my mom. I'm like, how did that happen? She's like, I don't know. I was just sitting here in the seat and he walked down and he sat next to me and he just started talking to me. And I was like, oh my gosh. And I will never, ever forget that story as long as I live, Stanford. 
It was John one. Madden. John Madden, man, legendary. I love listening to the guy. Yes, he's one of the main reasons why I started to love football, especially uh, the NFL on Fox. Him and Pat Summerall, yep. man, there, was a, there wasn't a duo better. Obviously, there's been so many great broadcasters. But for me, that'll be my all-time favorite. They started with CBS before they got to Fox. I'm old enough to remember there. Hey, <laughs> it's um, last time on, on the podcast, we talked about you're an assistant coach there for a local high school in Houston. Yes. Some of the coaches who had an impact on you. Oh, wow. We got uh, number one, Willie Brown, God rest his soul. Uh, somebody that uh, he was with Oakland right when I first got drafted. Somebody I looked up to. Somebody gave me a lot of knowledge of the game, but also knowledge from off the field, just being a man, things like that. I would go with Rod Woodson. Rod Woodson helped me become more of a playmaker, especially my last year in Oakland, 2011. I had four interceptions. Uh, that was something that he helped me understand more from even back when he was a player with Pittsburgh, things like that. Next, I would go with uh, Lionel Washington. He's someone I learned from as far as understanding the coverage, understanding when to take chances, when not to take chances, things like that. And then also I would go with uh, Kevin Ross. We called him Rock. He just finished winning the Super Bowl with the Bay Buccaneers a few months ago. He was one of my DB coaches as well in Oakland. Somebody that really just was almost kind of like a like an uncle or like a big brother. Somebody you could just sit and just, you know, just shoot the shit with. Somebody you could just talk with about anything. Uh, learned a lot of life lessons from him and football as well. So those are those are four guys that definitely uh, had an impact on me. Many in the same way, but also in different ways as well. So I definitely think highly of all those guys. So what? So Ross had the biggest influence on you, not only on the field but off the field as well. I'd probably say uh, from an off the field standpoint, probably I'd say Kevin Ross and Willie Brown had probably the biggest impact from a, from an off the field mindset. Things like that. Rod Woodson and Lionel Washington, we called him Speedy. They probably were the uh, the most on the field influences. So what kind of what kind of advice did they give you off for off the field? Because I'm curious. I know, I know that uh, Willie Brown, he would always tell us, he would be like, he'd be like, fellas, if you get your little ass home before midnight, you will find yourself not being in so many situations that you see players get in off the field. So you basically said, like, if you get home, if you're out of the bar, club, whatever, and you leave by midnight, you will find yourself in very, 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 very few situations at all in your life. Not even as a player, just when you're done playing, as a man, things like that. That's one thing he used to always tell us. Kevin Ross, man, trust me, he's giving me plenty of advice. I don't know if I can say it on this podcast. Uh, but uh, he, he, he helped me understand myself better. I remember how I would sit and have conversations with him and he would talk about how back when he was at Temple University, he'd taken a couple of psychology classes. And I remember I asked him, I was like, so tell me about like all the DBs, their personality. And he's just rattling them all like, like, like night and day. And I'm talking about like just rattling them over and over. And I'm talking about, he's telling me about my personality. He's talking about another guy's personality. And Mind you, it's still the coach-player dynamic. So it's not like we're hanging out with him, but he's able to pinpoint, yeah, that's his mentality. That, like, that's his personality uh, right there. Or like this guy over here, yeah, he's the type that'll do this. He's the type that'll do this. 
route. You're the type that'll do this. And I'm just shocked at like, wow, how he's able to read us like a cheap book. And he doesn't know the outside the facility version of us. He just knows us when we're inside the facility, when we're at work, things like that. That was something that was very fascinating to me that I always was uh, very, very intrigued by the psychology of knowing people based on certain mannerisms, based on certain things they say, certain actions, things like that. That was something that always blew me away that, uh, that he talked about. What'd you major in? Kinesiology, minor in African-American studies. All right. Uh, I want to get into more coaching. I want to dive into that a little bit deeper, but I do a sponsor read real quick for us. And, All right. You know, with the Raiders, the draft coming up, it's keeping me awake. I'm not sure what they're going to do, and uh, I'm not sleeping well. I'm staying awake, staring at my ceiling. So I'm always looking for new ways to get my act together, Stanford. My head hits the pedal and bam, my mind starts racing. What are the Raiders going to do? You know, yada, yada, yada. I'm sure it's relatable to a lot of Raider fans. Fortunately, I found Sunday Scaries and realized they make products specifically for overthinkers and night owls like me. Sunday Scaries CBD gummies help me decompress, clear my head, and fall asleep so I can actually wake up a fully functioning human being. All right, I want to go back to the Raider coaches. And Stanford, you played for five different head coaches in seven years. Um, mm -hmm. North Turner, Art Shell, Lane Kiffin, Tom Cable, and Hugh Jackson. Am I correct? Yes. So how difficult was it playing for that many coaches in that short a time span? <laughs> it's pretty much something that you grow numb to the madness and just block it away. One player that um, comes to mind that I really think about throughout all of this, from the North Turner to the Art Shell, to the Lane Kiffin, to the Tom Cable, to uh, Hugh Jackson, is Nandi Asamoah. And... We would switch from Lane Kiffin to Tom Cable. It didn't matter. Nami still went to the Pro Bowl. We switched from Tom Cable to Hugh Jackson. It didn't matter. Nami still went to the Pro Bowl. So watching him and listening to other guys, especially even Willie Brown, people like that, when you really break it all the way down, yes, if you're a quarterback, changing the offensive coordinator, maybe a quarterback coach, that 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 matters. But on the defense side of the ball, because we still played so much man coverage, depending on, I mean, uh, which didn't matter who the head coach was, we still pretty much kept the same defensive scheme. What does that have to do with you covering your receiver, tackling the running back, things like that? It doesn't. So when you really are able to compartmentalize and take yourself out of the media aspect of it, okay, we got a new head coach, which means we got to answer questions, things like that. Okay, once we get all that out of the way, it still is football, which means the ball is going to be kicked off at 1.10 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. You still got to go out there and cover the receiver. Dwayne Bowe, Vincent Jackson, God rest his soul, Malcolm Floyd. You got to go ahead and try to stop Phillip Rivers. You got to try to stop uh, Trent Green or Damon Hewitt or whoever the quarterback was for the Kansas City Chiefs. And the Denver Broncos, they had Jake Palmer, then they had Jake Cutler, guys like that. You still got to go out there and do your job. So you learn to understand that a it's a business and b what does that business have to do with your business on the football field and when you really break it down in that in that simplest component 
it's easier to just kind of like, oh, yeah, you know, we got a new head coach. Uh, I'm pretty sure I'll meet him. Hopefully he's a nice guy, but I still have a job to do. And regardless of whoever's the one talking to us on Wednesday morning before the start of the work week, I still have to go out there and do the same thing that I've been doing as for why they drafted me. Okay, but you said something that I want to follow up on. You said you got to block out the madness. Stanford, how dysfunctional was it inside that locker room when you were there? I'm not going to sit up here and say that it was completely functional. I'm not going to say that. But it was interesting to me always because the good players still played good, regardless of whoever the coach was. And I think that that's something we all should have taken more heed to when I look at Nambi Asamoa or I may look at a Randy Moss, a Warren Sapp, people like that. They still were able to go ahead and do their job because they understand that, yeah, who cares if we got a new head coach? You still have a job to do, period. So was it the most functional? Dennis, I'm not going to lie to you and say that. I mean, it had its dysfunctions to it, which all organizations do. I think that the main thing was that when I first came in, we did not we we never could get the quarterback position solidified where you have your franchise guy who's going to be here for another 10, 12 years. And I think that probably is more, you know, something that always had a trickle down effect because, you know, in 2021, if you don't have a stud quarterback, the growing belief is that you really are not able to get over the hump and actually get deep into the playoffs, win the Super Bowl, things like that. So I would say because we did not have that stapled, that stamped franchise guy, that probably was more indicative of the lack of sustained su- success or just the lack of success more so than always having the coaching carousel. I think the best quarterback you might have had there was in 2011 with Jason Campbell. And I still say to this day, if he doesn't get hurt and Darren McFadden stays healthy as well, you guys win the division that year. I firmly believe that, Stanford. I really do. Yeah, we go to the playoffs and we don't lose to Tim Tebow. Uh, I'm I'm right there with you, Dennis. So, yeah, exactly. And that's why I said how we did not have a stamped franchise guy. Not to say we didn't have good quarterbacks in all my years there. But we did not have the guy that, okay, we know this guy's going to be the quarterback for years to come. There wasn't that stamp designated guy. And I think that whenever you don't have that, that's just as indicative, or should I say, that can be just as detrimental to the organization as far as not having the continuity. It's just as detrimental as always having a new head coach coming in every year or 16 months. Stanford, you played franchise when Al Davis was alive he owned the team there was always the perception that uh, he, he was the head coach how much a uh, reality is it that he had a say in the weekly game plan both offensively and defensively yeah I'll have to say so in the uh, in the game plan I, I'm not really sure as far as how extensive it was I do know that a lot of the reason why we maintained the 4-3 was because of what Al wanted. I know Al preferred man coverage over zone coverage, which was fine with me because I like man coverage as well. As far as the offense side of the ball, I'm not sure exactly how deep his say-so or his imprint was on that. I'm not sure. I do know that there would be times where if we, if we were third and eight or third and nine and he wanted to see a big play or take a shot to the end zone, he would go ahead and, and give his input on that. But as far as the micromanaging 
as far as what a lot of people would say, the rumors, things like that. I don't know because me and Al only had maybe a handful of conversations my entire time there. But I will say that a lot of what happened in those years was a power struggle. And between who? It, uh, between coaches, between Al and coaches. I'll give you, I'll give you uh, an example right here. I remember back in 2008, I was playing nickelback, Nambi Asamoah, uh, D'Angelo Hall with the starting corners. I remember the last game of the season, how none of the starters were even suiting up. We're playing the Seattle Seahawks fourth game of the preseason. And because we used so much nickel that year, Rob Ryan thought of me as a starter, even though I wasn't on the 4-3 defense. But I played and so much, he considered me a starter. So he's already talked to Al that the starters aren't playing. Well, we get up there to Seattle. It's about an hour and a half before kickoff. And then all of a sudden, we realize, and all of a sudden, I realize that Lane Kiffin is like, oh, Stafford's not a starter. Like, he needs to be playing. So he goes and suits me up. And my, my defensive coaches, Rob Ryan and Don Martindale, we called him Wink. He's doing a phenomenal job as uh, the defense coordinator in Baltimore. Phenomenal job. They basically like, hey, Ralph, listen, what we're going to do is you're going to go in there for three plays. <laughs> for those three plays, fly around, cover your receiver, make sure that you don't get hurt. Like three plays, it don't even got. It, it don't matter whether it's going to be three and out. After three plays, route we're pulling. So like I'm literally getting warmed up, getting hot, getting hot, getting sweaty, things like that. All for three simple plays, which is weird to hear because I'm like I'm getting warmed up for a game, all to go on for three plays, and I have to make sure that I don't get hurt. Well, to go ahead and make sure that Al knows that number 26 is playing in the game. He then has me be one of the captains to go out there for the coin toss. <laughs> and so, and, and mind you, at the time, I have no idea what's going on. I'm, I'm 25 years old. I'm just playing football and I'm just like, I'm happy to be an Oakland Raider. But then as, a, as a, I think later on that year is when I then realized that that was also having to do with Lane not wanting to be an Oakland Raiders, the head coach of the Oakland Raiders anymore. Right. Him and Al were going back and forth, and it was a power struggle. So that right there is just, is just one component of how, in many times, there were power struggles that went on throughout the organization with certain coaches and other coaches, certain coaches and Al, things like that, where you may have a coach that he's now got a coach and player that he didn't want to sign or he didn't want to draft. Well, now he's not going to put that guy in position to be successful because he's too busy worried about being able to go back to another coach or uh, Al or something like that. See, I told you the kid couldn't play. So it, it was a lot of that. It was a lot of that going on back then. And like I said, at the time, as a player, you really ain't picking up on it because you're too busy worried about getting ready for the Chiefs or the Chargers or Patriots or the Ravens coming up on Sunday afternoon. But then in the offseason or, you know, you go and you talk to an older player, you kind of actually have a conversation with one of the coaches uh, in the offseason. That's when you start to see that there's so much more that was going on than just 
winning the game on Sunday or trying to win the game. That yeah, it was a lot of power struggle. It was a lot of underhanded backstab. It was a lot of that. So that uh that one story about Lane Kiffin making me suit up all to basically spite Al and Rob Ryan. Just yeah, so I'm I'm basically a pawn in, like in this power struggle, and then making me be the uh one of the coin toss captains just to make sure that Al does not miss me, even because he knows that I'm only going to be in there a few plays uh, when the game starts. But he wanted to make sure that Al did not miss number 26 suiting up, even though he knows distinctly Al wanted the starters and myself to not even suit up for that fourth preseason game. I heard the late Bill Walsh give a speech one time, and he said, you know, there's so few teams that can ever win a championship, Stanford, because it's so hard to get ownership the front office coaches and players all on the same page yes a great example of, of why the raiders you know weren't successful during your tenure there yeah that's very true uh, like bill walsh one of my favorite coaches of all time as well west coast offense i love right i, I love that you know that innovative thinking it's very true because like i said you have to get everybody on the same page. You have to. And it's a, it's a coach. If you can't get everybody to believe in you and follow you, the players won't do it because the players are already getting paid. In college, it's easy to get the players to follow you because you, you hold a key to a place they're trying to go. But in the NFL, players are already there. They're already getting paid a lot of money. So you now have to be able to convince that man, not that young man, not that boy. you got to be able to convince that man to follow you and oftentimes with coaches who are more college coaches, it's very difficult for them to be able to do that. But yes, you have that sort of thing that goes on where coaches will undermine other coaches just from a power struggle standpoint and even through, you know, the GM, the owner, things like that, all because everybody wants to be right. And one of the biggest misconceptions that fans don't ever uh, learn is that it's not just the guys in the pads with the helmets on that have egos. Having egos is something that is, is, uh, is something that is consistent with being a man, not just a football player. Right. <laughs> the biggest egos, uh, believe me, coaches, GMs, owners, all of that, like they have egos as well. So there's times where they will do certain things just to go ahead and show someone else in the facility, someone else in the organization, hey, I was right, you were wrong. And you know what? If I got to go ahead and it has to be at the detriment of a player, if it has to be at the detriment of his career, of me derailing his career for some odd reason, whether it's me bitching him, switching him to a position, playing in a certain scheme that's not conducive to his skill set, then you know what? That's just going to be a casualty and the cost of doing business. But I got to prove to so-and-so within the organization that I'm right and he was wrong. And oftentimes, you will see certain players that become casualties of that. All right, Stanford, I want to shift gears now if we could. And I know this is a Raiders podcast, but, you know, there's events taking place uh, in our country right now that need to be talked about. And on Monday, the three Minnesota professional teams, they postponed their games in the wake of the police shooting and killing of Dante Wright during a routine traffic stop outside Minneapolis. The Twins were scheduled to play the Red Sox. Timberwolves were scheduled to play the Brooklyn Nets, and the Wild were set to host the St. Louis Blues. You know, Stanford, when I first heard the news, I thought, oh, my gosh, you know, here we go again. And mm -hmm. I applaud these three franchises because I think it 
set the tone because the people of Minneapolis, they needed to take a moment. And it didn't matter if they were sports fans or not. I mean, there's no good place for something like this to ever happen. And in Minneapolis, it was probably the worst place that it could. You know, I, yes. I feel powerless and I feel helpless about this entire situation. You know, and if it helped anyone to postpone these games, you know, I, I applaud these franchises for doing it. I really do. Yeah. I love how they decided not to play because the ugly part about it, Dennis, the ugly part about it is you have a lot of people that if it doesn't affect them, they really don't care. Right. It doesn't mean that they're happy it happened, but they're not going to lose sleep over it. And because sports is one of the few things on this planet that brings us all together, whether you're from the suburbs, whether you're from the inner city, whether you're white, black, Asian, European, uh, South American, Hispanic, whatever, we all are fans of sports. Right. So I think for a lot of players from the Minnesota area, whether it's the Twins or whether it's the, uh, the T-Wolves or the Wild, uh, and it probably would have been the Vikings maybe as well if it had been in football season. Because a lot of players are minorities, their frustration comes from why is everybody not outraged? Like, why is that? And when I take it a step further, it's because a lot of it is you don't see people higher up on the chain of popularity, fame, this, that, and the other is outraged. So I'll go ahead and explain you what I mean. When you, if, if you go right now and you see the outrage, not the PC answer of how they feel, not the PC, no, not that. When you go and you actually see, let's say like a Tom Brady, who's furious about this. If you go and you see a Drew Brees, who's furious, a Matt Ryan, a Matthew Stafford, who's furious about this. I think you're going to see more of a ripple effect. But because a lot of people who may be on the other side of the line as far as their thinking, and they may look at it as, well, you know, he had an outstanding warrant and he ran from the cops because that may be their, their way of thinking. And there's not anyone that they look up to that actually is speaking out, showing, hey, you know what, regardless of all that, the shooting shouldn't have happened. He should still be alive to be in handcuffs, then do his day in court. And if he's, if, if he's found guilty, he goes to prison. Understood. So whenever you don't have that outcry, that outrage, people aren't going to follow suit. So for the Wild, for the Twins, for the T-Wolves, they're trying to go ahead and show, hey, you know what? This ain't right because even though people may have their own opinion, uh, well, you know, I mean, it ain't affected me, so I really don't give a damn. I'm not happy that it happened but I really don't give a damn. That's why they're stop. That's why they're postponing the play because it's like, I got to grab you and I got to get your attention because it's very easy. Well, you know what? That's not me. That's not my skin tone. That's not my problem. That's how a lot of people look at it. So they're doing their part to, I got to grab your attention because it's easy for a lot of people in this country and on this planet to use the same excuses I just gave. Oh, well, you know what? He had it coming. He had an outstanding warrant. Or that's not my skin tone, that's not my ethnicity, that's not my race, so you know what, that's not my problem. And insert any other excuse they want to make. But when the people that they look up to, the Tom Brady's of the world, 
the, the JJ Watts of the world. When those guys start speaking, and if you notice, in a lot of times like this, they're not really, really that loud. Doesn't mean that they don't say anything, but they're not really, really that loud. They're not. And they know how to be when they want to because it's very, very proven uh, throughout history and throughout the timeline. Oh, they know how to be loud whenever they want to. So whenever you don't see that, that's a lot of people just going to follow suit. And they're going to be like, well, you know, so-and-so didn't really say much about it. So why the hell should I? Because at the end of the day, we all know that's what influencers get paid for on social media, Instagram, or models, or whatever. They have a way of being able to influence the public. But you have a lot of people that have the ability to influence the public, and they really don't want to step into that area. They don't want to step into that lane because, oh, you know, I don't like to get political, or I don't like to get, uh, I don't like talking about controversial issues. But it's also about that really don't matter to you. You don't really care about it because if it's something that really mattered to you, you would find a way to go ahead and say something. So that's why I believe the T-Wolves, the Wild, the Twins did what they did because we have to find a way to get some of you guys' attention because some of you people out here, y'all just going to pretend like, gosh, that's too bad. Uh, honey, will you go ahead and pass the potato salad? And just continue with the rest of their day, continue with their dinner, and just as far as they're concerned, business as usual. So it comes a time where you got to find a way to try to get certain people's attention in. You take away their sports. Oh, they hear you loud and clear when you take away their sports. You know, they're not easy conversations to have, Stanford, but we got to keep the dialogue going until we can get real impactful change in our country. Yes, absolutely. I think that uh, just to go ahead and uh, just to go ahead, kind of you know, wrap this whole thing up. I think that until we all, all, not just them or not us, all, until and the same thing like in a football locker room. If my me and my teammates, we go out and we're not playing well on defense, and we're not screaming at each other, yelling, getting a little heated, whatever, we're not improving anything. We're not. The only way that you can come to get to the same page on something, business, race, sports, whatever, you got to have those heated conversations because that's the only way you both are going to understand each other. Because if both of you are saying what you think the other one wants to hear, or you're saying something that makes sure that you that you want to make sure doesn't offend the other person, you're never going to actually see exactly what it really was. I remember times on the football field where we'd have maybe a bone coverage. And we get to the sideline, we got to have that hard talk where, hey, man, you were really supposed to do this, this, and this. That's what we, that's what we talked about uh, during, uh, during the week. And no, Stan, uh, we're supposed to do this. No, let's go back and look at the notes. On Wednesday, when we did the install, this is how it was supposed to go down. And you're going to leave that conversation probably a little heated, maybe a little angry at the other person. But now we're both on the same page. Right. But if it's one of those where I'm going to tell you something, Dennis, even though I know that it's A, I'm going to tell you B because I don't want to offend you. Yeah, we both lead the conversation happy. We're both cool with each other. But we didn't get nothing solved because we're too busy walking on eggshell. So for all of us, until we have conversations that get heated, they get emotional and maybe even a little physical. 
That's what happens sometimes. It's a part of life. You can't have a good football team if you don't have a few uh, brawls and fights in training camp, and as far as I'm concerned. As long as we don't have the conversations that get heated, emotional, maybe even a little physical, probably, you know, get some yelling, maybe even some expletives, we never will get to the root of the issue of, okay, this is why they think what they think. This is why they think what they think. This is why I think what I think. This is why we seem to be on separate ends of the spectrum on this. Until the heated conversations happen, nothing will ever freaking change because you cannot get to the root of the problem. You can't figure out how to score on defense. I'm sorry, how to score on offense or stop the Tampa Bay Buccaneers from scoring on offense. You can't figure that out until we have the ugly, it's going to get heated, probably emotional, maybe a little physical, we, until we have that type of conversation, we're really just like, we're just pissing in the wind. All right, Raider Nation, that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Believe in Raiders podcast presented by betonline.ag. For my partner, Stanford Route, I'm Dennis Ackerman. Thanks so much for listening, and may all your pants find the coffin corner. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.